All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome to the American Security Project. If you could uh, go ahead and take your seats, and uh, we'll uh, we'll go ahead and get started. We have uh, we have a full full house today. This is great. Uh, happy to have have you all here and and have you with us. Uh, I'm going to introduce the the American Security Project. Then I'm, I'll. Uh, introduce our Congressman Quaylar, and then we'll go to our panel, and, and we'll go from there. Um, the American Security Project, first to start, I'm, I'm Andrew Holland, Chief Operating Officer of the American Security Project. Uh, we are a small national security think tank, uh, been around for 15 years now, if you're not familiar with us. Uh, take a look at our website. We do a broad range of national security issues, everything from trade, like we're talking about today, to energy security, environmental policy, nuclear non-proliferation, um, or anything else under the sun, uh, but all of it with a national security perspective. That, that means that we think about this in, in a way to kind of get, at, get away from the partisan trench warfare on the Hill and start thinking about America's long-term national interest. What is in our long-term national security? And since our founding, one of the key things of that has been trade. We, we believe strongly that trade is a way to build closer relationships, to enhance American national security by, by bringing our allies and partners closer together, tying us in with us, with them. And, and we think that, that an agreement like USMCA, NAFTA before it, is, is important for confirming the, uh, the strategic importance of our closest neighbors, literally our closest, you know, as in land borders, but also our closest partners in a lot of things around the world. So uh, we don't get into the, into the details of, you know, how much goes where and all that sort of stuff, but the importance of the agreements in themselves is, is extraordinarily important. Um, that's why we're so lucky to have Congressman Henry Quaylar here with, with us today. He represents Texas's 28th congressional district, which includes Laredo, Mission, Rio Grande City, San Antonio, quite a big part, portion of the border. Uh, so he knows cross-border relationships uh, better than all of us here. Uh, as I was looking through his bio, uh, I thought it was kind of a, a, an important thing to note. He is the most degreed member of Congress. Uh, so that means he, he, uh, he values education, and I think that's, that's extraordinarily important. Includes associate's degree from Laredo Community College, uh, graduate degree from Georgetown University, uh, Texas A&M International University, um, JD and PhD from University of Texas at Austin, and another one from Georgetown University. So uh, that's more than I can say. <laughs> I, uh, I stopped after two. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, he is, he's a longtime leader on uh, trade in, in the Democratic Party. Uh, he is a chief deputy whip for the 116th Congress. And, and uh, he's one of our, our leading sort of bipartisan congressman, and, uh, and I think that's important in, in our day and age. Uh, so, Congressman Quaylar, thanks, and, and over to you. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Thank you, uh, and again, thank you so much for your kind introduction. I do appreciate the American Security Project for having this, because when you talk about trade, Ambassador, uh, when we talk about uh, trade, we always 
you know, when you look at every great civilization, there are certain things that are important to that civilization, and that commerce and that trade, uh, and if you look out throughout history, uh, commerce and trade has been uh, so important. You know, I am a Democrat. I always tell my Democratic Party, if we as a party are against trade, that's not good for the party. We have to make sure that this is not a Democratic or a Republican issue. It's good for the country. And you know, I can tell you just in my hometown, for example, I'll just quickly tell you why it's so important. Loreto is a small little town, about 260,000 uh, individuals. We have surpassed, we're the largest inland port, but the, the biggest port in the country, total trade, is LA. And for about three months, we surpassed uh, LA. Uh, the uh, tariffs on, the, uh, on China made Mexico great again because we get a lot of trade uh, on that. So we actually surpassed LA as the number one uh, part, uh, port in the whole country itself. Uh, and it's, um, it's amazing because in Laredo we have, for example, every day we have about 16,000 trailers a day. What does that mean? If you put all the trailers and line them up, what passes in one year in Laredo, they will literally go around the world twice, is what passes through Laredo. Trains were the largest uh, passing area for trains in the, in, in the country. We're number one in trains. We're number one in buses. Now, why are buses important? We get about 125, maybe 150 a day, and on, on peak hours or peak days, we get about 250 uh, buses. Why are they important? Because every day, uh, or just look at uh, a, a couple years ago before somebody started calling the Mexicans rapists and murderers, and they said, well, we, we don't know. We want to go up there and spend money up there. Literally, we had over 18 million Mexicanos, Mexicans, that would come into the United States and spend over 19, over $19 billion a year. That means a lot of money. Uh, not only this is apart from trade, hotels, restaurants, malls, name them, uh, monies are uh, they're being spent over here. Uh, recently, we've seen some of those numbers go slightly down because, again, if you're called a rapist of murder, you're going to say, well, why should I go spend money over here? Or if you treat people a particular way at the border, they're going to say, well, why do I need to do that? And especially the, the, the wealthy Mexicans, they'll say, well, we'll go uh, to Argentina or we'll go to Europe and spend the money over there. So we want... The, the Mexicanos have come back uh, over here. So trade is very important, and it's all tied into tourism. And that's why every great civilization, if you look at history, I mean, I'm sorry, trade is always so important. The commerce is so important uh, to that particular uh, civilization. So it, trade is very important. In the state of Texas, and I mentioned just Laredo, uh, but in the state of Texas, you know, we're the number one uh, trading uh, state and we know what it is. So we know how important Canada is. We know how, how important Mexico is, and this is why I'm a big supporter of of, uh, of trade. Y you cannot have a conversation with another country without trade and commerce. Uh, and, and there's times where we people feel that you know you isolate yourself, uh, that it's good for the United States. And let me give you an example where, and I remember when we were going through. Um, you know, uh, the, you know, trying to get um, you know the countries to go into the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and I think on the third day with the new administration, they said we're going to get out. I thought it was the biggest mistake we could have done. In fact, I used to say that we would have a NAFTA 2.0 without the sensitivities 
of opening it up. I had no idea what was going to happen. This is before. Said so we passed the Trans-Pacific Partnership. One of the good things, because people will say, okay, that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What does that have to do with Mexico, especially on the border, or, or Canada? Well, we could do a NAFTA 2.0 without opening it up. Of course, we know how that just got turned upside down. I was in, uh, as you know, I said on defensive probes, homeland probes, agri probes. But on the defensive probes, we were on a trip uh, to that part of the Indo-Pacific area. And I kept hearing from the people from Vietnam and other countries that say, you know, the U.S. just doesn't have an interest in our part. And, and I kept hearing, because we met with different officials, and they kept saying the same thing. Finally, I said, why do y'all keep saying this? And I was thinking military-wise, and of course that's important. You know what they brought up? When you all got out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, you sent a message to us, a signal to us that we were not important to us. And when there's a vacuum, who comes in? The Chinese come in. And you know the biggest winner out of this were the Chinese. I mean, quite honestly, uh, out of the uh, you know the TPP. So you know, I thought that was a mistake, and we cannot repeat that mistake again. Uh, with uh, and I'll uh, you know you, you can call it whatever you want to call it. I still call it NAFTA 2.0 because it's 95% of it is NAFTA 2.0, uh, and we need to do this. And it's very important to the Canadians. It's very important to the Mexicans. It is extremely important to us as a country to have this. Because when you have this region, that we can compete as a region uh, with the rest of the world. Um, it, it is just amazing, as I mentioned, you know, every day there's more than one, just with Mexico, more than $1.7 billion of trade between the US and Mexico. That's over a million dollars every single minute. Every single minute, it's over a million dollars. And it's not only important, because of economics. Uh, it's also important to, you know, to us in so many ways. Don't we want to have a safe, prosperous neighbor to the South? Uh, isn't that to our own self-interest to, to have a, I mean, the Canadians are strong. You know, Mexico, as you know, they do have some issues uh, on security issues, the, the drug cartels and the security issues. The immigration issues, as you know, are going on. So we want to, it's to our own self-interest to have a strong, prosperous Mexico, a stable Mexico. And this is why this trade agreement in so many ways is important. It's important to them. It's important to the Canadians. It should be very important to us. Uh, and, and again, you know, the impact of the Mexicanos, not only tourism, but I mean, name, I mean, the, the cement that we walk on, it's probably from Cemex. Or when you talk about so many things here, they might have names that were familiar, but they're owned by the Mexicans, the investments that, that they do over here. And it's something that we do also, you know, with Canadians, Mexicans, and all that. But the, this trade agreement, and, and I want to just narrow that down to where we are, but we know the importance. I think I'm preaching to the choir why it's so important. Uh, but let me talk about where we are right now. I feel very confident, and, and of course, the last couple of days have kind of complicated things, but I, I feel that we can chew gum and walk at the same time, uh, and we want to make sure. I talked to the White House, I talked to Pelosi's people, I talked to the Ways and Means, uh, two other folks. You know, we want to make sure we keep everything separate, you know, 
what's happening over there is a different thing or in Congress on the impeachment part of the inquiry. But what's happening you know, on trade, we have to get it done. Uh, I, unless if something changes completely, we should have a vote November or December of this year. Uh, I feel very, very confident. Uh, we are, you know, there's a lot of things. And, and I'll tell you, I started back in 2005 with the first vote uh, on CAFTA. And I can tell you, I was a freshman Democrat. I didn't understand the politics here. It was my first year. So, you know, Labor had talked to me and they said, hey, you know, we don't want you to support this. And I said, well, why? This is, you know, I have an 87% voting record with y'all in, in the state house. This is important to Laredo. They said, nope, this is something else. Uh, and I said, well, I'm going to come out. And I actually, I was the first Democrat as a freshman, not knowing that our labor was going to make me their number one target uh, in the country. And they did come in and they spent, they were trying to send a message. You know, you come out when we're against it, we're going to send out a message. And they spent millions of dollars against me. And actually, I thanked them because they were spending money in, Laredo, my, my, my number one area, which is the number one port, and I kept saying, Coyote is bad. He supports trade. Coyote is bad. I kept saying, keep spending the money. And actually, I usually get about 89% of the vote. I got 90% that year. So it was good that they were spending, and that's not knowing your district. Yeah. Folks outside not knowing your district. So we, I came out, and, and, and the politics was very different. It was my you know, because I was the first Democrat and, you know, all of a sudden I had labor targeting me. I mean, literally they target, they send people down there to spend money and all that. And I remember um, uh, Bill Lane, anybody knows Bill Lane from uh, Caterpillar? He said, no member has ever lost a, a vote on trade. I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, I believe that. And uh, so, you know, we, we went in and we did what we had to do. We won re-election, but it was interesting, the national politics. And people would sometimes forget the merits of the thing you know, the merits of the thing. And CAFTA, the way I remember that, uh, didn't we have our country open to the goods uh, uh, coming into us? We were trying to get our goods over there. So it was a no-brainer. They were already sending goods into the United States. We wanted to make sure we do the same thing. And that's what the trade agreements are about, is to make sure we reduce the, the barriers on that. But the reason I bring in 2005 uh, was because uh, the the environment was very different. I mean, you know, labor was fighting us very strongly on this, my, my labor friends. Uh, and before you could even talk to some members, you could, you know, I would ask them, do you support CAFTA? Before I got there, they would say no right away. I mean, you could see people took their positions. Uh, same thing happened with the Columbia uh, Agreement also. Uh, and before you could even finish the question, do you support the Colombian Agreement? They would say no. This time, the environment feels different. And I say this from personal experience because I've been through a lot of those trade agreements. And it was very different. I mean, I feel it very different. You can sit down and people say, uh, well, let me, let me look at it. Uh, even, and, and keep in mind, there's a lot of freshmen and second termers that have never voted on a trade agreement. Uh, and when people say, oh, this is a vote, you don't want to give a victory to Trump. In my opinion, it has nothing to do with that. It's like, how does that affect me in my own district? And there's a lot of members that, and I can tell you right now, because I'm counting the Democrats uh, on that. We'll let the Republicans count the Republicans. But I can tell you there's a history on some folks that no matter what, they will always vote no. I mean, they'll come up with something, vote no. There are folks like myself that are very supportive, will vote yes. There's a lot of people in the middle that are really trying to digest this agreement, will it be good, what does the Farm Bureau say, what does the 
you know, manufacturers, what does the chamber say, what do my local folks say? So they're actually going through that digesting uh, part of it. But the thing is, the fact that labor is not coming out the way they've come out uh, gives the business opportunity time to, you know, talk to members. And I've said to the Farm Bureau, to the U.S. Chamber, and other folks, use this opportunity because labor is not playing the hardball. Because I've seen labor play hardball. They're not doing that. They're actually trying to get to a yes. And this is where, you know, I have to credit uh, Robert, uh, I'm sorry, the trade representative, um, that he actually has done a good job working on the labor part. And if you look at the trade agreement, uh, it's very simple. I've told this when I've spoken on the caucus. It's very simple. Either we repeal, as the president said at one time, I think that's no good. We could either keep what we have, it could work, but we know things have changed from the 90s to the present time, and the third option is a much better option. That is, you get NAFTA and you improve it. 2.0, it's better to have. I mean, there's so many aspects, and you all know the details, but things have changed. E-commerce, so many things have changed that the third option, and this is why I presented to the Democratic Caucus, either we repeal, that's probably not good. Number two, we keep what we have, we could survive with that. But the third option is get what we have and it's better. And in fact, I wasn't here in the 90s, but Democrats were saying we want all those labor provisions, not as a side agreement, but we want it in the agreement. Democrats should be jumping up and down because what do they have? They have those provisions in the agreement themselves. And if you look at what Mexico has, and, and by the way, labor is fighting not for the workers here, right? Who are they fighting for if you really look at it? They're looking at what Mexico's gonna do. Think about this. The whole fight on enforcement, what enforcement are they talking about? Is Mexico gonna enforce the labor reform that they did? That's really what the fight is. It's, it's a rather interesting. So what we're looking at is a situation that, you know, the, the trade representative has done a great job of putting this inside the labor provisions, very strong labor provisions in. So Democrats should be jumping up and down taking credit for this. The other thing is Mexico went through a very difficult time to do the labor reform. I mean, just that, like we have politics here in the United States, in D.C., in, in El Df, in Mexico City, they have their own politics. But they were able to change the labor reform. Uh, I mean, make la historic labor reform. In fact, I was there the day before, and they were saying, we're going to get this done, and they did it. Uh, they got it done. So when you look at what are the issues that the Democrats are talking about, you know them already. Four things. One, labor reform, which Mexico's done. Two, uh, the enforcement part of it. Three is the environment. And four is pharmaceutical, you know, the, the, the time. By the way, that has nothing to do with Mexico or Canada. This is a American industry saying we want this protection. Um, and the Mexicans, and I don't know about the Canadians, they said we have nothing to do with this. This is something that y'all need to figure out on that. So let me go over, I mentioned the pharmaceutical. Um, let me talk about labor reform. I, I took a Codell there and I invited people uh, from the Speaker's office, from the Ways and Means, and I even invited Trumpka, was at one of the Democratic caucus, I said, Mr. Trumpka, do you want to come with me? I'm going to go up there. This is before the labor reform, so you can see what they're going to do. He said, well, I can't, but I'll send you my, my person. So he did. So I went 
remember my history with labor. I invited and they went, uh, they, they joined us over there in Mexico. And what I did is we're meeting with the Secretary of Labor, with the senators and the congressmen and the, uh, the president's uh, chief of staff. I said, ask them all the questions. And it was interesting because after they did that, labor was, you know, labor was saying labor reform, labor reform. They shifted after that, they shifted over to enforcement because they saw what Mexico did was good. And so they shifted over to enforcement, uh, which is the part I want to talk about. But let me talk about uh, the environment. My thing is on Democrats, I say, hey, look, let's reauthorize NatBank. I don't know if you're familiar with NatBank. NatBank does about three quarters of what the work they do is green. Green. And they do a lot of work on the environment. You're seeing what's happened in the San Diego area where they're dumping on the Mexican side. Laredo, we went through the same thing where Nuevo Laredo was dumping 25 million gallons of raw sewage into Rio Grande. And we were able to build this facility on the Mexican side. It's good for them because, as you know, the 25 million gallons of raw sewage in the river, and we depend a lot on the water for drinking, doesn't stop in an imaginary line. It's their problem becomes our problem like this. So we're able to do that. So I said for the environment, at least that aspect, let's do the environmental part through the net bank because they do a lot of work on that. Um, and so we kicked the bill out of committee, first time in so many years. My hope is that I've talked to the speaker's office, the ambassador's office, to the Ways and Means, can we get this bill, make it part of the implementing language the net bank, uh, the authorization, put more money, more capital, all that, and make it more efficient. I need for them to be more efficient on the work they do, and that takes care of the environment. So I think we're on that page on that. So the last part has to do with the enforcement. On the enforcement part, it has to go down on one issue, budget. The budget from the Mexicans. Do we have anybody here from the embassy? Because I need to... Uh... <laughs> no? Okay, well... I'm... I'll be talking to the ambassador. Okay, hey, oh yeah, mis amigos, mi mensaje otra vez. <laughs> Let me say this. When I was in Mexico City with Kevin Brady, I told the secretary, Marcelo, and other folks, it is very important that on the labor reform that you all put the budget there, the money. I understand what the Mexican government is doing, the president with austerity, and you got to cut. I understand all that. But this year, we're hoping to vote on this, and we got to show an increase on the enforcement to make sure that you have enough money to support this. Um, we were told we understood. We had a meeting later, the speaker, myself, and the ambassador, and somebody else, and we were told we increased a certain amount here, but we had to cut over here, and this 30% was not a cut. Pelosi said, I'm an appropriator, Mr. Quay is an appropriator, 30% cut is a 30% cut on that, <laughs> quite honestly. And I'm saying this because we have to get this done. Somehow y'all need to figure this out. And we're among friends that I'm saying this. And, and I'm, we'll be talking to the ambassador. I spoke to Marcelo last night, uh, also um, the night before, should I say. Uh, we have to show this enforcement. It, it is very important, and I'll tell you why. Because yesterday, as you know, Pelosi set up a task force. And if you look at the task force, there's some people who are not very supportive of trade. But what Pelosi was doing, she does this because if she can get people that are not very supportive of trade, people who are supportive, 
they get together, they work something out, then she can turn around to the caucus and say, hey, so-and-so, without mentioning names, can you tell us what you were able to do it? Yes, we were able to do that. And can you tell us what we did this on, uh, on uh, environment, on labor? Oh, yeah, we did this. Then she turns to the caucus, hey, looks good, let's move forward. I've seen her do that. She did that on the conference. I was on the conference on the shutdown, and there was one member, and I said, what is this person doing here? Yeah, without due respect, this person. But it was to get the progressives, and sure enough, she was able to add certain things, and then she would, Pelosi would call her up in front of the caucus and say, what were you able to do this? On? What were you able to add on that? So it's her way of supporting, getting support, and she does a good job. So yesterday, as you know, uh, well, uh, as you know, last week the ambassador met uh, with the task force and they talked. And yesterday I talked to one of the members of the task force. You know what was the first thing they brought up? Mexico's budget. Mexico's budget. So it's not only Pelosi and myself talking, now it's this task force. And what he told me was Mexico needs to help us on this part. And I understand the budget, what the 30% cut was. Uh, uh, I understand exactly what it is. But if we have to explain that it's not a cut, that it's a losing proposition. And I, I'm ready to vote and support the, the agreement. But there's a lot of members that sometimes they look for something to say, I'm against it. We cannot give members an excuse. And I'm talking about the Democrats. We cannot give some of my Democrats. Uh, members an excuse to vote against it. We're at a very delicate time. My understanding is that Friday, tomorrow, there will be another counteroffer from the uh, Democrat task force to the ambassador. And we're hoping that we can continue. And I did talk to the ambassador. Um, uh, and I did talk to the ambassador exactly on Mexico's budget. That, that part has become very important because remember what I said. Labor reform, Mexico did a historic. We ought to congratulate what Mexico did. You really all did a great job. Uh, and the pharmaceutical, the environment, we can do that with the NAT Bank. But the enforcement part now is some members are looking at the budget. Now, in the US, we do a one-year budget. We do one year, we don't know what's going to happen. Mexico, you do a one-year budget. You do a one-year budget. We don't know what's going to happen next year. Hint, hint. So what I'm saying is this year we got to have a budget that Democrats can feel because otherwise we'll lose a lot of Democrats. And I say that, uh, you know, Pelosi's meeting, it was only her, but she did tell the task force. That's her responsibility to tell the task force there's an issue here. And now yesterday, uh, task force members said there's an issue here. So. I say this among our friends because I want this uh, trade agreement done, and I want to see this. I don't see it in October uh, because we're off the next two weeks back in the district. Uh, there'll be conversations that I'm going to call the trade representative. Uh, as you know, I had set up a meeting to bring three, sorry, three secretaries, and we that should have been yesterday, but as you know, we postponed. Uh, so we can get the budget part of it, because otherwise it would not work very well among the caucus. So I had three Mexican secretaries I talked to the speaker and uh, to the caucus, can we bring the three Mexican secretaries, like Economia, uh, Labor, and Hacienda Finance, so we can show that. But we're concerned about the, 
the budget part. So we said, we got one shot with a Democratic caucus, and we'll wait to another time. So we're going to, I've, uh, I've spoken to the Mexican officials, we'll do this another time. So we can come in and members can ask all the questions they have. So we're trying to do all this behind the scenes to make sure we address those four items. Uh, I feel very confident uh, that it's moving in the right direction, very confident. Uh, I feel very confident that, you know, this November, December, not next year, you go to next year, forget it. Uh, the only thing that kind of put a little twist on this was the I word. And I'm not talking about Iowa. <laughs> uh, and, but I'm hoping that we can keep everything separate because this trade agreement has to be done, has to be ratified, has to be passed, approved by the U.S. Congress. And if we put it on the U.S. Uh, uh, on the U.S. House of Representatives, we will pass it. We will pass it, but we just got to work out a couple more things. So that's the latest thing. So tomorrow there'll be another counter proposal. And I, I just have to say the trade representative and our task force have been working very, 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 very diligent on this thing. I feel very positive. So on that, I'll leave it open for any quick, easy questions, a yes or no, or I'll get back to you uh, on it. Uh, but I'll be happy. I know you got a panel and I got to get back because I'm going to be uh, presiding on the floor. At, and I think we do have time for a couple questions here. So uh, please ask your question in the form of a question, not a statement. Uh, <laughs> and, and please identify yourself and wait for the, the camera. So we'll go right, ma'am, right here. Hi, Marilee, International Trade Today. Um, on biologics, do you think that a large number of Democrats would be satisfied with language that says if the Congress ever reduces the 12-year standard in the U.S., then new NAFTA will ratchet down? Or do you think that the 10-year will actually have to be changed to another year? I, I don't know on that aspect. I know in talking to Kevin Brady and other folks, that's their suggestion, say, if Congress... Because as you know, this has nothing to do with Mexico or Canada. This is something that our industry say, we wanted this. And I mean, if you look at it logically, that's what it should be. Uh, that should be it. Uh, question is, uh, how are we going to get to that part? I don't know. But I think at the end, there'll be things there that some members might not like, and but will they be able to support the overall on that? I, I couldn't tell you exactly on that. I know how some members feel. I don't know how the caucus feels overall. I can tell you exactly how some members feel on that. And, you know, as you know, some of my members uh, in, in the Democratic caucus feel very strongly about that. And I keep telling them, don't blame Mexico, don't blame the Canadians. I mean, this is an internal thing within the U.S. They got to add it, you know, to the language. Well, I think you want to you do one more? Yes. Time for one more? Ma'am, right there. Wait, wait for you, the, the mic come over. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm, um, I just wanted to elaborate a little bit more on that point because you say it has nothing to do, the, the patent provisions for pharma, has nothing to do with Mexico or Canada, but it would well, I mean, it, it, it does, but I'm saying the source of it. Well, so it would export our domestic policies on patent provisions and extend them further another two years to 10 years in Canada, and Mexico, where there are no biologic provisions, would extend them to 10 years. So. My question is, how do you support this bill that basically locks in high drug prices for cancer, diabetes, and other? Yeah, and, and if I had it my way, you know, the little red button, I would change the time on that. And certainly there's a lot of my colleagues that would change the time on that. Uh, 
uh, you know, change the, the, the time on that. Uh, and I understand the arguments for and against, and you know, certain folks say, well, we need certain time to get our research dollars, or there's some other folks who say, yeah, but there are people that need that help. I understand all that. But again, in the big picture, this is a trade agreement, uh, and trade agreements will include certain things that sometimes um, we might not be 100%, but you look at what's in the overall good of this. Congressman, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Really, uh, so, hopefully November, December. <laughs> That's the takeaway. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Have a great one. <laughs> well, now we're going to have our panel come on up here, and we'll we'll uh, expand and respond and and uh, go from there. Well, what a great discussion. And as the uh, congressman is leaving, uh, I'm going to introduce our panel. But first, I wanted to, in case folks didn't didn't notice here, Ambassador Carla Hills is here. And, and as, as we know, she was very involved in, in NAFTA 1.0. So, so thank you. And, and thank you for being here. And, and uh, you know, wonderful to have your, your input. Um, our panel today. Uh, to respond to, I think, just a tour de force by Congressman Cuello, to, you know, running through everything. We, we could just wash our hands and, and <laughs> run off now. Uh, but our panel today is, is, is great, and, and uh, we're lucky to have them. Uh, I'm going to introduce them, uh, and then we're just going to kind of get into a discussion here, and we'll have kind of a discussion with some of the, uh, the, the audience, and we can go from there. Uh, first, uh, Ed Gerwin, uh, immediately to my right, is a lawyer, trade policy analyst, and president of Trade Guru LLC. He re yeah, he really is the guru. <laughs> uh, provides advice to trade issues on domestic and international organizations, uh, frequent white writer and commentator on trade and, and politics. Um, he served as senior fellow at both the Pro Progressive Policy Institute and third way, focused on tr how trade can better support inclusive economic growth. Uh, he also served the Obama administration, Congress, and the broader business community on these issues. Uh, we're lucky to have him. Uh, and then Eric Farnsworth, uh, at the end, uh, has led the Washington office of the Council of Americas and the Americas Society since 2003, uh, during which time the stature and influence of the organ organization has grown significantly. Uh, Farnsworth began his career in Washington with the U.S. Department of State after obtaining an MPA in inter international relations from uh, the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. Uh, in government, he served uh, in, uh, at State uh, at USTR and culminated in three and a half years appointment as a senior trade advisor for the White House Special Envoy for the Americas. Uh, and in this capacity, he played an important role in developing and implementing the Clinton administration's policies towards the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and I think we have two important experts on, on this topic, and, and I only pretend to know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> so uh, 
you know, they, they, Washington, you're an expert until proved otherwise. <laughs> um, but I think I think we'll start right in in here, and and uh, you know we can talk some on the politics, but also ASP is a is a national security organization. I mentioned um, this is also important to talk about the, the partnerships here between uh, U.S. and Mexico, and and U.S. and Canada, and how trade uh, works on that. So so maybe uh, Eric, I'll have you start. There and then, then Ed can talk someone on the the nitty gritty here as as the trade guru. Well, Andrew, thank you for your invitation. It's yeah. great to be here with you and your ASP colleagues, uh, and uh, sitting next to the trade guru, but actually sitting in front of the real trade guru, yeah, yeah. Uh, which of course is Carla Hills. <laughs> Uh, indeed, uh, Andrew mentioned I worked at USTR, and I did for a brief period of time during the original NAFTA negotiations, and my boss was Carlo Hills. <laughs> so uh, I better be on my game today. Uh, <laughs> having said that, uh, and just to show you how far we've advanced since the days of the original NAFTA, one of the first emails I ever received at USTR, the system had just been implemented, this must have been 1992, uh, last days of the Bush administration, was from Carlo Hills as the U.S. trade rep, and I, as a very junior and very uh, unimpressive and uninspiring uh, junior-level official, uh, received this email from Carla Hills, and boy, I thought I had arrived. <laughs> I thought a cabinet-level official was sending me emails, and here I am, and wow, you know, I'm going to write this one to, to my parents. And in fact, it was one of those emails that was to all staff, right? So I, you know, read it, and I was, you know, so here we go. But the, the serious point here is that was the beginning of emails, right? And that was only 25 years ago when we were negotiating NAFTA. The world has progressed to the point where most people, my kids, don't even use emails anymore because it's only for the old people, right? So I use emails all the time, you know, by definition. But the point that I'm making is the world has changed. Andrew has asked about security, uh, and uh, we'll go into the economics, we'll go into right. some of the rationale for why the USMCA is, uh, its time has come and it should be passed. But uh, security is no different, ladies and gentlemen. When I started at the State Department in 1990, uh, the world was a different place. And to suggest that the United States and Mexico would cooperate on security was ludicrous. Right? If you went into a high-level or a low-level meeting in the U.S. government and suggested that we need to share intelligence with our Mexican government colleagues, you would have either been laughed out of the room or possibly fired. Because the level of trust between the two governments was non-existent, the level of cooperation was worse, and in fact, on the security side, it was basically a hostile relationship. Yeah. At best, it was, it was just people ignored each other, but at worst, it was hostile, and some of you probably remember some of the cross-border drug activities from the 1980s and Kiki Camarena and some of these things. I mean, this was not a good time. What did NAFTA do to help that out? Well, NAFTA helped build trust. NAFTA helped both governments open up to each other Private sectors open up to each other. People open up to each other to begin to understand what our countries were really about. And with that opening began a very slow but a very steady process of building trust between governments and people. To the point now, Andrew, where we are routinely sharing high-level classified information with our Mexican government counterparts. And they're sharing high-level classified information with us. And we're working together on joint programs on counter-narcotics, on counter-terrorism yeah. after 9-11, on joint security. Not to say everything's perfect. Not to say there aren't you know, times when we have to run internal security processes and there are individuals and this and that. But as governments, 
again, in the process of one generation, we've gone from zero trust to very high levels of trust. Now, let's bring this back to the United States. Forget about Mexico for, uh, for a minute. What does this mean for us? It means that we can have a much more secure southern border. Mm -hmm. It means that the government that occupies our almost 2,000 mile shared border is now in the main working with us instead of against us to help address those common threats that face us. It's what the Canadians have been doing since Canada essentially became an independent country since the War of 1812. I don't know, pick your take. <laughs> but we have had a similar relationship with Canada. And when I was in government in the 1990s, people were frequently lamenting, saying, Andrew, why can't we have a relationship with Mexico like we can have with Canada? Right. Well, you know, by history and by culture and by yeah. tradition, we're never going to have exactly the same relationship with Canada that we have with Mexico or vice versa. But what we have done is we've brought it up to a level of maturity now that has really uh, superseded not just administrations, not just politics, but from one <coughs> generation to another. So if you put it in that perspective, and you know, can you say NAFTA is responsible for that? No, not entirely. But you can certainly say part of that it. NAFTA has contributed to that yeah. and been a critically important point. So if yeah. we're looking forward in terms of building that relationship further, my contention would be this is not simply, quote, unquote, a trade agreement. In fact, USMCA doesn't even have trade in the title. So you could say, well, well we don't even know what kind of agreement it is. That's a joke, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen. But the point being that there's much more at stake here than just trade and investment. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Thank you. Um, but the economic points are important. You know, that it is important to, to talk about what, what are the economic benefits, both for the United States and the continent as a whole. So, Ed, what do you, what do you think? Well, the, Andrew, the economic uh, benefits are here. first of all, thank yeah. you very much for including me. Yeah. When uh, Andrew invited me, he said, I'd like you to come and speak about the substance of the USMCA and the politics. <laughs> now we have Ambassador Hills, who knows more <laughs> about the substance of NAFTA than, than anyone in Washington. Yeah. Yeah. And we just heard from the man who was paid to count the votes yeah, yeah. <laughs> in Congress about the politics. So uh, I feel that I'm uh, second banana on both of those issues, but I'll, I'll try to do my best. Um, I think there are two major benefits to the USMCA. The first one you will not hear from President Trump, and hmm. that is that the USMCA retains the essential core of NAFTA. And if you want to get to the core of the core, it's the principle that most of the trade among our three countries, virtually all of it, is duty-free. And that core principle has driven a real transformation in the North American economy. We build things together. I mean, most of you know about the unified North American auto production supply chain, for example, in which parts and components cross borders six, seven, eight times before there's a finished car. But that story is repeated in many other industries. For example, if you look at San Diego and Baja California, Tijuana, uh, that is the home of the largest unified medical device manufacturing or in the entire world. And that's, again, driven by NAFTA, because parts and components and people and information flow back and forth across that border to make medical goods every day. So maintaining the core of NAFTA, despite the fact that the president has called NAFTA the worst trade agreement ever, is very important economically, 
It's important to communities, as the congressman said, for communities across the border. And it's really important for the entire country because 33 American states count Canada as their number one export destination. Mm -hmm. Seven American states count Mexico as their number one export destination. And two of those are California and Texas. So these relationships economically are hugely important. And maintaining that core principle of NAFTA uh, is a key. Uh, the important thing to keep in mind is that that wasn't a given when we started these talks. And even before then, during the 2016 campaign, President Trump said repeatedly that he wanted to withdraw the United States from NAFTA. And he mentioned on multiple occasions um, that we ought to be putting tariffs on, on uh, uh, trade from our Mexican friends. So I think the fact that we've kept that core is really important. But the other reason why I think the USMCA is important is because we are, as the congressman mentioned, modernizing NAFTA. Now, uh, I think there are certain provisions of the USMCA that are a mixed bag. I don't particularly like the managed trade uh, provisions around autos. Um, the administration has made a big deal about increased dairy access to Canada, but I think those uh, that access isn't really all that much. But there are some very important provisions in the USMCA that are modernizing. The first two, the congressman mentioned, uh, taking labor and environmental rules, which during NAFTA were inside agreements, and putting them in the core of the agreement, making them enforceable the same way every other provision in the core of the USMCA is enforceable. I think that's important generally. I think it's important for Democrats. I think it's important for people who care about the environment and labor rights. Another area um, in which I think the USMCA is important is a small set of what I think are very important provisions around small business. I've written extensively uh, about how small business exporting can be a real opportunity for people. It has the ability to expand the group of people who benefit from trade. If you are um, in a lower income urban area or you live in an isolated rural area and you have access to the internet and UPS or FedEx and you make an interesting product, you can sell it to the world now. And the USMCA will help grow that trade because it sets up special committees and dialogues to give small business more of a voice in how the trade agreement works. It says to countries that you need to put all your rules and regulations in an easy to read uh, set of uh, screenshots on the internet. Mm -hmm. And it also does a lot uh, to get rid of red tape for small shipments. If I'm a small entrepreneur in Iowa and I want to send to Mexico, I shouldn't have to deal with lots of customs rigmarole uh, when I'm trying to send my shipment to Mexico. The most important, I think, modernizing thing that the USMCA has done is around the rules on digital. Hmm. Uh, as Congressman Cuellar noted, um, you know, digital wasn't a thing back when NAFTA was negotiated. <laughs> There's no reference in NAFTA to the internet but they speak 
on multiple occasions about telegrams. So, um, you know, NAFTA needs to be freshened up when it comes to the uh, modern digital economy. And the thing that's great about the digital rules uh, in the USMCA is that they basically apply some of the same kinds of disciplines to digital trade that we've had for goods and services. So you should be able to deliver goods and services through digital means just the way you can with a truck or a ship. Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't, countries shouldn't be imposing data localization requirements, saying that your server has to be in this country or that country. Uh, that tends to make digital trade more expensive, and perversely, it actually decreases the security of digital uh, transmissions. And there are other provisions as well. For example, provisions that enable digital commerce, things like um, cooperation on cybersecurity, cooperation on privacy, and um, enabling things like electronic signatures. So if I want to do digital commerce across the border, I can do it effectively. So again, I think the, the two major advantages of the USMCA, which again, in my view, is not a perfect agreement, that they keep the core and that they modernize the agreement in some very important ways. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that's an extraordinarily important point. Um, Let's talk politics a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, I think Congressman Quaylor had some some very uh, insightful thoughts, and um, I guess the first question, quickly for both of you, is is timing. Uh, November December uh, to me sounds um, you know a little aggressive in timing, but uh, do you think that that's that's likely, and that's when when people are looking to, and then. Um, you know, what's, what's the outlook and how has it changed in the last week? Uh, Let you start with that one. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Eric. <laughs> um, I practiced law for years and I learned the easiest way to get in trouble with clients was to try to predict the outcome of trade votes. Uh, it, it's very difficult. But, you know, um, I tend to agree with the congressman, again, because he's the guy who counts the votes. Yeah. Uh, that a vote by the end of the year is possible. I've heard that from other Democratic members yeah. who I think have a very realistic view of this. I mean, look, the reality always is it's increasingly hard to vote on things when you get into an election year. Mm -hmm. I also think, in a perverse kind of way, um, the impeachment investigation increases the likelihood that they're going to want to try to move quickly on the USMCA. And here's why. If you look... Uh, at the statements that um, Democratic members have made in recent days, those who have recently said, yes, I support an, uh, an impeachment investigation, they tend to be the more moderate members who are from battleground districts who really want the USMCA. Mm. And the point that they make is, I didn't come to Washington uh, to impeach President Trump. I came to Washington to do work for my constituents. And for a lot of these members, um, doing the MCA is important work for those constituents. Uh, so I think those members want it. And I think given how strategic Speaker Pelosi is, my guess is that she's going to try very hard, as the congressman said, to segregate 
their regular business from the impeachment investigation uh, and to proceed on the regular business like the USMCA as expeditiously as possible. Uh, I think uh, I was talking to uh, Ambassador Hills and she raised, I think, the excellent point that we may run into an issue of time. That Congress only has so much time uh, to do all the things it needs to do. It needs a budget agreement and other things. But I am optimistic that they're going to give it a, they're going to really give it a try to get it done this year. Eric, maybe I could ask, ask you about politics, not in Washington, but as your Council of the Americas, how are the politics of USMCA play both in Mexico City and Ottawa? Uh, obviously, the Canadians have an election coming up. Uh, how has the U.S. Uh, renegotiation and insistence on, on all of this sort of stuff, how does this play in capitals beyond ours. Yeah, no, thank you. Really important point because we always get myopic in terms yeah. of our own situation. We forget that there are actually two other parties to this negotiation yeah. and this agreement. Uh, but before I go there, sure. let me just very, let me add a quick coda to Ed's comments if I can. Uh, and I'm certainly not going to try to second guess uh, Henry Cuellar, who's the true expert, or, or, or Ed, who's a real political animal, has done these things for years. Um, but let me just add one point if I can. Yeah, please. And the issue of presidential leadership in trade, uh, uh, getting trade agreements across the border border across the goal line, sorry, wrong <laughs> analogy, uh, in my view is fundamental. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, there are experts out here, but I can't think of a trade agreement which has passed the U.S. Congress that has not had a full dose of presidential leadership behind it. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not going to make any conclusions here uh, because who knows how the situation is going to transpire up on Capitol Hill. It changes literally by the hour, but simply to tuck it away in your head that you know, at least one scenario would suggest that presidential leadership, whether it's because of the compromises that have to be made or the public selling that has to be made or whatever it is, uh, is going to be required and put that into the uh, framework in terms of what's happening now and the, uh, you know, difficult, let's use that word, atmosphere between the political parties yeah. and between institutions, Congress and the, and the executive branch right now, and factor that in and come with your own conclusions. But to me, I think that's a very important point that needs to and be it's, it's like discussed. And it's not necessarily vote yes or vote no. It's do you have a vote or yeah, not, yeah, right? Right. And, and you know, I, having been around enough congressmen taking trade votes, they just don't want to have the vote. A lot of times. And you need that executive branch push. You need yeah. that presidential leadership to say, now is the time. We need it. Uh, and here's what we're prepared to do to get it. So in the context of the other two parties to the agreement, uh, this is relevant because, look, I mean, uncertainty is really tough. Yeah. Uh, in Mexico, they've already passed the agreement. Now they're working on implementation legislation. They're working on budgets, as Henry Claire yeah. already mentioned. Um, they're working on the next phase. Um, and they're doing so in good faith. Uh, the Canadians were moving it through their parliament and doing so uh, quite, um, quite effectively. And then, of course, it's gone on hiatus because of the electoral process, which will um, go through uh, October. Uh, but presumably, um, and if you talk to both government uh, leaders and opposition figures and uh, various members of the Canadian uh, private sector, uh, sure, there are people that don't like certain provisions of the agreement. There are certain sectors that feel a little bit aggrieved. But at the end of the day, I think Canada probably sees that it doesn't have too many choices other than to move forward with the agreement. So the game is here in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean there isn't collateral damage to our delay. Let's, let's play this out. If this goes beyond 2019 and goes into an election year, uh, stranger things have happened. I suppose it could be passed in an election year. But, but let's 
propose that it doesn't, and it goes to 2021 or even perhaps early 2022, now you've got Canada and Mexico in good faith having gone through the process, done the negotiation, made the politically difficult trade-offs, and having gotten nothing for it at this right. point, and the private sector is delaying the investment that these economies yeah. need to grow. Yeah. And why is the private sector delaying investment? Because they don't know under which provisions their investment's going to be made. So they don't know what the rules of the game are. So they're going to say, well, until we know the rules of the game, we're going to invest somewhere else. Or we're just going to sit on a pile of cash, which is what a lot of people are doing as well. So this has a huge implication, not just yeah. for politics, but for the economy. Now, one final point on that, and that is this. You heard Henry Cuellar talk about it's in our interest to see Mexico succeed. And I fully subscribe to that. And how can we help Mexico succeed? We can help Mexico succeed by not doing things that will intentionally undermine Mexico's economy and make it more difficult for Mexico to grow, more difficult for Mexico to create jobs for Mexicans in Mexico, more difficult for President AMLO to uh, do the agenda of poverty alleviation and, um, and income um, uh, uh, inequality, trying to address those very fundamental issues in Mexico that he wants to do uh, and that he needs to do if he's going to be politically successful and if he's going to feel it to be in his interest to be a partner mm -hmm. of the United States politically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, One thing, Andrew, I, I, think, um, I think that's an excellent point about presidential leadership. Um, the thing I'm, uh, it gives me a little bit of optimism is the degree to which Ambassador Lighthizer mm. Yeah. Uh, has established excellent relations uh, with the Democrats. And I'm mm -hmm. hoping that Democrats on the Hill basically um, see that Ambassador Lighthizer has been deputized by the president and that he is exercising mm -hmm. uh, e executive branch uh, authority and influence. Uh, because I, you know, I don't think the president sits up at night looking at the details of uh, the USMCA. Uh, so I think that excellent relationship, and I've heard it from lots of Democratic members, they have very high praise for Ambassador Lighthizer. I think that excellent relationship yeah. is at least a little bit of cause. Yeah, of yeah, good. Maybe they, how does this, kind of related to that, because there's, there's other priorities in the trade agenda, obviously. Uh, I'm thinking especially of, of the China trade war. And, and does... Um, being able to either present a united sort of continental uh, front towards China uh, help in this, and and also does getting something through Congress help in a in in the the Chinese direction? I mean, do you think? Uh, from my perspective, yes to both. Yeah. Strong yes to both. I mean, look, um, one of the things, one of the ways the world has changed since the original NAFTA. In 1993 is when we talked about China, what were we saying? I mean, China was like the economy the size of Pakistan or something like this. I mean, mm -hmm. I'd have to check my facts, but it certainly no, was not the yeah. world's That's second right. largest economy. That's right. and, certainly and expected to be, be for, for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the world has fundamentally changed in a way that uh, I think has uh, been certainly acknowledged by the White House, by the government, but certainly by, by countries around the world. There's been some positive aspects to that, but there have been some ser serious challenges mm -hmm. uh, to that as well. And I think, you know, if we take... The White House, as it, at its word, that China is an economic and security threat. And again, this isn't a China session, so we're not going to delve no, into right. that necessarily. But let's posit that we just take that at its yeah. word. What's the best way to address some of those issues? What's yeah. the best way for the United States to expand its own ability to address 
uh, these challenges from a, an emergent China with clearly a different worldview, clearly a different political system, and clearly a different ambition that lies outside perhaps the Western consensus that, yeah. has, that has governed the globe since the end of World War II. Well, uh, from my perspective, it would be not just to build your alliances and build the countries of like mind to be able to work together to address some of these issues. But on the economic front, it's to expand your markets, but also mm -hmm. to expand the effectiveness and efficiency of your own production. Yep. Right? So just remember your first, you know, basic economics yep. in terms of economies of scale. Yeah, if you're dealing now with a, with a North American production platform as yep. opposed to a US or Canadian or Mexican production platform, mm -hmm. by definition, that is going to be uh, working together much more efficient and effective uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of economic uh, production and ability to compete more effectively with China. And that's precisely what we've seen. We, it's what the economists predicted what happened. It's precisely what's yeah. happened. Supply chains developed across North America. And the irony here of what's happening in terms of the U.S.-China trade war is now you're seeing a lot of corporations, U.S. but others, a lot of corporations starting to rethink, well, do we really, are we really seeing ourselves uh, here in China for the long term. Right. Should we think about reshoring, right? Yeah. And where do you reshore? What's the most logical place to reshore? Yeah. Well, it's to Mexico. It's Mexico. Yeah. Again, if the rules of the game are certain and known, yeah. and people can say, let's make this work. So yeah. there's a lot at stake here. Yeah. And it's not just, quote unquote, a trade agreement. This is a strategic, yeah. this is my soapbox, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, so bear with me. But, <laughs> I mean, this is a strategic issue for the United States. It has been for 25 years, but when we look at it primarily as a trade agreement, we lose the, the basis of why we should be doing this in the first place. Having said that, from a trade perspective, it also makes a whole lot of sense to do. You know, I, I think we could have made the uh, exact same arguments at a similar ASP event we did three years ago on Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, and and I think we we did make those arguments, and we were we were pretty involved in that then. And, and you just you just stole my thunder, actually. <laughs> you know, um, and obviously it would be better. You know, I yeah. I absolutely yeah. agree with Eric that it's important to get this done. Taking a step back, I think uh, I agree with the congressman yeah. Yeah. and and Andrew that the biggest geopolitical blunder the Trump administration has made in the trade world is getting out of Sunday TP. Yeah. I mean, they could have gone back and said to our partners, okay, there are things we don't like, let's work with this framework. Mm -hmm. uh, and in my view, we could have used that to export American values to a much broader chunk of the world. Let me just give you a practical example. I went to Vietnam in 2015, and we met with the local representative of the International Labor Organization. We asked, what do you think about the TPP and labor? And he said, it's not perfect, but yep. it could do a lot of good. Yep. So what has happened after the United States pulled out of the TPP? Uh, Vietnam has backtracked on all the labor pro uh, progress that it promised to make. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I, right. I also regret the fact that we're not yep. pursuing the uh, TPP. I think it's important for the reasons Eric said to get the USMCA done. And I have another reason. I think it's important to clear the deck mm and to be, be able to do other things, like re-engage yep. with our, our friends in the Asia-Pacific region and to see if we can establish a broader alliance, not only for market access, but uh, to create a counterweight to China. Uh, the other thing I think Congress very much needs to do, and this has a national security implication to it, Congress needs to take some time and to begin to rein in the president's abuse of tariffs. The 
president is taking delegated authorities that he's gotten from Congress, which under the Constitution has the power to impose duties, and he has stretched those beyond all recognition. I mean, when you say that cars from allied countries are a national security threat, the concept of national security really doesn't yeah, mean yeah, anything not... anymore. So I think Congress needs to really make an effort to do that. And I say to Republican friends, you want to do this too because President Bernie Sanders or yeah. President Elizabeth Warren yeah. could do the same thing. Yeah. So yeah. I think you know it's important for its own right to do the USMCA, but it's also important to clear the deck so we can do some other very important things that we've been neglecting. Well, I know we've uh, had a good discussion here, but I'm going to open it up for one or two questions here. We've got, a, we've got about 10 minutes left before we're, we're going to go. So uh, as before, please wait for the, the microphone to come around. Questions in the form of a question, not a statement. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take one and see where we go. Or we've shocked you into silence, <laughs> so uh, so that's fine too. And we can uh, we can talk amongst ourselves a little bit more here. Uh, but I guess my I I want to kind of pick you pick up on this, um, you know, taking the the power back from the, the president here. Um, maybe so. What would be next? You know, at, at this point. Here we are. I guess we, we heard something about a potential Japan trade agreement or something yesterday. But, but what's next for in the broader trade agenda? Where's the trade agenda going into the next term and, and the next decade? You know, what, it kind of, what, what's the big things happening? You know, clear the deck of USMCA and then, you know, are we, are we what do you guys see? Are we moving towards a different trade world or, or is it, you know, where are we going? Uh, a couple of quick points, if I can, yeah. before, you know, that certainly, I'm sure we'll have some very uh, relevant views. Um, I think we have to get our arms around uh, reform of the WTO. Mm. Um, I think the WTO has proven itself to be fundamental in terms of the uh, management of global trade. Mm -hmm. And again, like NAFTA, we can all suggest ways it could be improved and updated and uh, these sorts of things. But the idea that uh, through administrative um, uh, 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 disagreements and refusal to appoint people to important uh, positions could hogtie the uh, the institution. I think is uh, is short-sighted, mm -hmm. and I think it's uh, something that we need to really focus on, uh, with a view to trying to save and improve the institution, not trying to undermine and destroy it. Uh, that, to me, is uh, where I hope we would spend a lot of time and effort. But in the context of specific trade agreements. In the Western Hemisphere, which is my sort of uh, area of concentration, uh, the logical next step to the extent uh, the politics works would be some sort of uh, trade agreement or arrangement is probably a better word with Brazil. Mm. Uh, Brazil is Latin America's largest economy. It's yeah. a complicated place to do business, as you all know. It's a closed economy relatively, so there's a lot of gains to tra from trade to be made mm. uh, and investment uh, with Brazil. Uh, and both presidents like each other. Uh, yeah. President Bolsonaro yeah. fancies himself the Trump of the tropics, uh, and President Trump is flattered by that. So they have a good relationship. They talk together. Uh, the politics are complicated. The economies are complicated. And I'm not suggesting it's the near term, but this yeah. is something that uh, could be a next step. And then I think the, the, the other 
uh, next step that certainly um, uh, will become or could become more relevant as we go forward into the new year uh, would be something with the United Kingdom uh, based yeah. on the Brexit yeah. Uh, yeah. scenario. Uh, we don't know how Brexit ultimately yeah. is going to come out. <laughs> uh, uh, I think the UK is having its own challenges yeah. of governance right yeah. now. Uh, but uh, assuming they get those worked out uh, and if, Bre if the United Kingdom becomes a, uh, you know, its own um, uh, its own, uh, the ability to enter trade agreements on its own and, and for itself. Uh, you've already heard the White House talk very favorably about the possibility of doing something with the yeah. United Kingdom. So I don't know, there's some creative things to be uh, suggested there. But then again, as the trade theorist, and then I'll let Ed yeah. to give us the real yeah. story here, um, the idea that we're looking for wins from individual bilateral agreements, no matter yeah. how large yeah. an economy may or may not be, to me is second best, yeah, or third best, or fifth best. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we all know about the spaghetti bowl. Yeah. We all know about the complications. For, and you know, yeah. we deal with the private sector and the business community. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you've got twelve trade agreements that govern, you know, the transfer of widgets from one economy to the other, which one do you use? Yeah. Which one governs? Yeah. Which one is the the best way to? And you know, the lawyers win, the consultants win, the the accountants win, sure they do, but do the companies win and more importantly do the public utility increase and yeah. do the people of those yeah. economies win yeah. and that's yeah. ultimately yeah. why we're doing trade in the first yeah. place. So I think we have to think about those, yeah. those issues. Ed, I, agree with, with, yeah. I very much agree with Eric uh, on the WTO on the need of doing broad gauge trade agreements with multiple partners where we can have consistent rules. I advise clients for yeah. years yeah. as a lawyer and you pull your hair out trying to trying to advise a client on how to uh, comply with a whole bunch of different trade agreements in this spaghetti bowl effect. Uh, I think there's some room for progress with the UK. Uh, I, I love the story of the fact that a couple of years ago, because our trade statistics don't quite match up, we both thought we had trade surpluses with the other. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, wow, you could tell President Trump That's and the British leadership, it's really a win-win yeah. if we do that deal. Uh, so uh, I think it's that. But let me, let me move on to something that isn't trade, but I think it's the thing that is going to help generate support for trade, is that we have to get things right domestically yeah, absolutely. Yeah. when it comes to employment, and training and explaining to people who lose their jobs, not just because of trade, but in most cases, much more likely because of automation and changes in technology. We need to get that stuff right. Mm -hmm. We need, for example, to be able to make sure that people who have credentials, those credentials are portable and meaningful and that they can get real good jobs. So if the economic winds change because of trade, Trade doesn't become the boogeyman. It just becomes the thing that helps them find a, yeah. a new and better job. And, and I think this is probably the most critical point of, of this whole uh, panel discussion right now, if I can say so. Because, you know, look, I worry. I've, I'm, you know, of let's say we go and pass the USMCA and it's implemented fully and all that, and then all these jobs don't return right. to the American Midwest, right. where I'm from, uh, and the manufacturing doesn't come back in the yeah. same way. And I think there are some pretty um, pretty important predictions suggesting that it's probably not going to. It's certainly yeah. not going to come back the way it was in yeah. 1993, yeah. 1994. The point being that the expectations have been raised here, haven't yeah. they? And yeah. say we pass this agreement, all of a sudden, you know, the American yeah. Midwest Renaissance. Yeah. And you know, it might be for the machines, but maybe not the humans behind them, yeah. right? So the point is, you know, 
there is a lot more here. And if the cynicism then you know, really sets in and says, well, well, we went through this whole process to reform NAFTA, and you know, we're only marginally better so off, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Right? And if our American public gets to that point, I think we are in a really bad place. Because if we look at our own history, it's been trade and openness to the world that's really done yeah. as much as anything to, to drive our own uh, economic well-being. Put your own house in order. I yeah. think that's a good place to stop. Uh, we're uh, we're going to close with that. And uh, we're, we're here to, to take questions offline, if you, if you like, afterwards. But thank you all for coming. Thank you, uh, Ambassador Hills, for being with us. And, and thanks for those watching online. Uh, you'll be able to see this all on our website, americansecurityproject.org, uh, link to it, and, and all that sort of stuff. So, so thanks for coming, and thanks for your interest in this. Thank you.